All right, my name is Ted Nugent, full-time, and I am proud to share the American rhythm and blues rock and roll musical dream with my blood brother, Robert Miller. You're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Robert, follow your dream. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is the great Susie Quattro who blazed a path as one of the first and one of the best female rock and rollers. She's from Detroit, the Motor City, and she grew up in a musical family. Her father was a musician, her sisters were musicians, and she's a singer, a composer, and a fellow bassist. And she may be equally famous as an actress for playing the role of Leather Tuscadero. Who could forget Leather Tuscadero? on the sitcom Happy Days. And she's done a whole lot more, including becoming a writer and a doctor. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musical guests, Susie and I are going to do what I call a song fest. We've picked out a handful of songs that are some of her best works. We're going to play a bit of them. We're going to talk about them, and you'll get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts, I can assure you. And also, you know that I feature one of my songs underneath the introduction and at the end of every episode. And I try to make the song relevant somehow to my guest. In this instance, I have chosen the song Get Out. It's from the album PGS7 by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this? Well, Susie is a hardcore rocker. And Get Out is about as hardcore rocker as I can get. So I thought that it fit. So Susie Quattro, Dr. Quattro, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Did you need a prescription for something? (laughs) (laughs) You know what you just made me think of? You know that great sketch, uh, More Cowbell from Saturday Night Live? Yeah. Where Christopher Walken goes, I got a prescription. I need more cowbell. Okay. <laughs> well, I like going on stage and doing my little, I do a little bit where I talk. I do like a two and a half hour show, my solo shows. And I, I refuse to believe that nobody finds this funny. Let's see if it makes you laugh. I use it every night. Nobody laughs. And I don't care. I say, I tell the story about how I became honorary doctor of music and I'm officially Dr. Quattro. And the funniest thing about being Dr. Quattro is I have no patience. See, I you laugh. Funny. Thank you. I think it's, it's funny. It's a bass player's joke. You laugh. There you go. <laughs> bass player. You got to have a cymbal hit for that one, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. You know, when I read over people's history and biographies, there's always stuff that jumps out at me. And the first thing that jumped out at me when I was reading all about you is that you started out on the bongos, okay? Which I think is fantastic, okay? And I started to say to myself, wait a minute, how many rock and roll songs are there that feature the bongos? So I said to Susie, okay, let's let's do a little thing here. Let's have some fun. Let's see if we can both name a couple of songs 
that feature the bongos, okay? You want to go first or you want me to go first? I can go first. Harry Belafonte. Dale! Fantastic. It's not a rock song, but it was a pop song. Anyway. You know what? That works. I count that. No question about it. For me, the number one bongo rock song is For Your Love by the Yardbirds. really good choice and i've played with them i played with them when that was out that was that was a good one and i have to say it's the standing joke amongst my band and anybody i've been in the studio with that apparently at every given opportunity i say i play bongos you know and i've been on any every album playing bongos i'm really proud of it i was seven <laughs> when you learned how to play huh fantastic well, listen, I had uh, Jim McCarty from the Yardbirds on this podcast, and I said to him at the time, I got to tell you that For Your Love, to me, it was all about the bongos. And I asked him whether he played the bongos. He said, no, there was a guy that was like just standing around the studio that had something to do with the, the band, and he just started to play the bongos. I said, well, he did a fantastic job. I mean, that's a terrific song for the bongos. He did. I, I did properly learn bongos, so I actually am a good percussionist by the way. <laughs> I know you You are a trained pianist and a percussionist. Am I right? And a self-taught bassist. Yeah. Trained pianist and percussion, self-taught on bass. All right. We're going to get to bass in a minute, but give me another bongo song. Oh God, it's really old. Skip and flip. It was I. We're telling everybody else Okay, that's the only one I can think of. Get the flip. I never heard of that one. No. Okay. <laughs> well, I cheated a little bit because I thought about this in advance. So the, the second one that I picked is one that you definitely know. It's Sympathy for the Devil by the Stones. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a man's soul. Sure. And that I thought, actually, I thought that that was a strange choice to add to that song. I did. Why? Why did you think so? I, I just was I wasn't sure that it suited that. They were trying to say something in that song. And I thought the, the bongos were a little bit too beatnik-y. I mean, bongos are beatnik, really, aren't they? Well, you're right. But you know what? If you go back and you listen to the song again, I can't even imagine it without those bongos. No, because that's how you heard it. So, And you can never take it back out again. The however you hear it is the way. Yeah. There you go. Okay. I got one more that I picked out, which I think you'll like. Inner City Blues by Marvin Gaye. 
That is a good one. That's a good one. And Marvin Gaye used in all of his hits, especially in the later years, he used a lot of percussion effects, like Herd of the Grapevine. You know, and that was all percussive. You know, what's going on? All percussive. Um, I'll tell you the first song I ever played on the bongos in front of my dad's trio was Mac the Knife. And it's not on the record. But my dad said, come and play. And that's what he played. So I went, oh, the shock head. But he dear. And he calls him. Yeah. Early white. And he gave me 25 cents for doing it. <laughs> 25 cents. Wow. He gave me that to stop. <laughs> the first time I ever played for compensation, I had my high school band and we got paid in cheeseburgers. Oh, no. <laughs> So you were ahead of me if you got 25 cents. Yeah, but you have 25 cents. Um, I've said this all my life, but I say it again now because you said it. I did not get into the business to make money. Never. The fact that I do make money is just a lucky bonus. You get in the you should get in the business because you have to be in the business. End of. End of. If if fame and money comes, great. If not, you're gonna do it anyway. Couldn't agree more with you. Couldn't agree more. Because think about it. I mean, what percentage of musicians or any entertainers really make a living? Okay. We certainly hit the heights, you know. Yeah, rarely. And, and you know, I'm now in my 59th year as a professional. I started at 14, very young, went straight on the road. And still to this day, I can't even imagine how many gigs I've done. Still to this day, I go out there thinking, Oh my God, I hope they're going to like me. And then when I'm out there, I always think, and you pay me for this? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and I'm sure that every time you go out there, you're giving 110%. Am I right? You're absolutely right. I'm just going to tell you briefly something, my father, because you'll appreciate this. I was about two years in the band by then. I was about 16. So I've been in the band since 14. and even though all his kids, three of his daughters were in the band, he pulled me aside. Now, remember, my dad's a musician his whole life, okay? Right. Pulls me aside. He said, Susie, want to, have a, want to have a word with you? I said, yeah. He said, tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me like I'm talking like he used to talk. It seems to me like you're going to be doing this for the rest of your life. I said, I am dead. He said, right then. I have two bits of advice for you. I said, okay. I'm 16. He said, first of all, this is your job. It's a profession. Yeah. Second of all, it doesn't matter if you are playing for 10 or 10,000 people. Every single one of them put their hand in their pocket, took out money and paid to see you and you owe them. Is that great advice? That stayed with me. My heart. It, it rang true in my heart, in my entertainer's heart. 
and I can never do enough to entertain. So what good advice to give somebody at that age, you know? Spot on, spot on. You know, you made me think that I told this story once before. Back in the day, it was the era of Woodstock. It might have been a week or two before Woodstock. I'm up in the same area because I was playing that summer in one of the hotels in these Catskill Mountains. And somebody invites me to go see a band, you know, playing that night. And they were playing inside of a trailer, a trailer. Yeah. It was Jethro Tull. Fantastic. And maybe there were five people in the place. And you know what? Ian Anderson and Jethro Tull put on a two-hour show as if they were playing in Madison Square Garden. And I never forgot that. That's called professional. Yes. That is called professional. But there's so many people that say they're professionals, but they they don't act it in that fashion. And you know, when you're starting out, look, I'm not in a, the same position as you. You're at the top of the pyramid. But my point is when I started with my band, you know, we were playing you know, different clubs and the like. And it was like giving a private concert for the bartender and the waitress. Okay. Yeah, sure. Until you get a, an audience, until you get fans, that's the way it is. But I always remembered that Jethro Tull moment. I said, okay, I got to put out 110%, no matter what, as you said, whether there's 10 people or 10,000 people. It's non-negotiable. And in fact, not to labor the point, but back in the days, you know, when we were doing, um, I was, I was like 16. I had to lie about my age playing in New York city, a truly Hillers club. You did five shows a night, 45 on 15 off 45 on 15 off five shows. And I one time had a talk with the owner, Trudy Hiller. And I said, why do you have us play when there's nobody in here yet? And she said to bring people in. So I made it my job then to make the one drunk at the bar who didn't care about this band at all, turn around and look at me. And I did it. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> then I knew I won. I said, you're watching me. I got you. <laughs> All right. We're both bass players. Let's talk a little bit about the bass. There's almost nobody that starts out on the bass, okay, that I've ever met. And certainly I didn't do that. I was a trumpet player first. And when this little group from Liverpool came out, it suddenly wasn't too cool to be playing trumpet. So I taught myself guitar. And since I was the only one that knew the treble clef amongst my friends, they all said, well, we'll we'll learn the treble clef. Why don't you learn the bass? That's how I became a bassist. Tell me your story. I am a percussive musician, having gone from bongos to proper percussion in the band. I played in the school band, first chair on the band, by the way. I got to first chair, which means I did the best on the rudiment test. And also piano is classed as a percussive instrument. So I am that way inclined anyway. Uh, we started the band after seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. We all got on the phone and Patty, my sister said, why don't we start an orgore band? Great. And everybody went, I want rhythm guitar. I want drums. I want this. I want that. And I went, hello. I just, and I'm never quiet. It's fate. I was quiet. I said, what am I going to play? And Patty said, you're playing bass. I said, okay. And I went to my dad. This is my favorite part of the story because he was been a musician. We had every instrument in the house. We had three pianos, three proper pianos in the house. We had a harp. We had a, two different accordions. We had guitars. We had banjos. Everything you can think of was in this house. I said, Dad, we're starting a band. I'm playing bass. Do you have one? He said, sure. You know what my first bass was? You're going to go green. You're going to want to, if you had a gun, you'd shoot me right now. My first bass given to me to learn on and to play was a 1957 
Fender Precision. <laughs> See, that's sickening. Okay, for people in the you audience don't know, this, this woman know. went to the top of Mount Everest, okay, with this bass. You know, for people that don't know, the, the old Fender Precision basses were, you know, the top of the, the, the line. I have one, but I'm not a 57. I got a 1960 Fender Precision that I bought in a pawn shop in 1974 for $100. Yeah, before they knew what they were doing. And exactly. then all the British musicians went over and started to buy, and then they figured out what they had. But um, the, I, didn't, I didn't know, of course I didn't know, that the precision was a big bass. I just thought, okay, here's what I learned. I didn't know the neck was wide. I didn't know it was heavy. I didn't know there was any choices available. I just thought, this is what I've been given, and this is what I will master. And I did. So it was kind of faded that I was going to become a good bass player because I learned I'm the hardest and the best, but I didn't know this. I had no idea. How did your father have a 1957 precision lying around? I don't know. And an electric mandolin, the exact duplicate of it to, to persuade him to buy this bass. <laughs> I don't know how we had it. All right. Now, look, you're from Detroit. I assume that you've got Detroit through your bones. OK. And of course, Detroit had some of the greatest rockers and it had the Funk Brothers and James Jamerson, who played bass at Motown. And of course, he used a Fender Precision. Did all of that enter into your playing? Was it infused in you? Oh, yeah, I was weaned on, on Motown. I can still do every single Temptations dance routine. Um and I can. I, I am a Motown. Would you freak. like to do some of that on this podcast? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> um, I can. I can honestly say that, in my humble opinion, there's never been a bass and drum sound like Motown had in the '60s. There has not been. For some reason, it was just magic. The only combo that comes pretty high up the rank for me is Fleetwood Mac. Interesting. The bass and drums on them is pretty damn good. But what Jameson did on bass, he changed my style. I one time was jamming, because I sometimes would just jam along with records, and How Sweet It Is came on. Try this. It's, it's quite something. How Sweet It Is, Marvin Gaye. I started to jam along, and I went, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's not what he's playing. And I put it on again. He, he was playing a quarter of the notes that I thought I heard. And that changed my style. I leave the gaps. It's all about the spaces. It is about the spaces. It's like it's like Rocky Horror Show. Anticipation. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You know, you mentioned uh, Jamerson and the Funk Brothers at Motown. And I've asked this question of several of my guests. I mean, the Motown studio was not really a studio. It was a basement in a house. I know. How did they get the sound that they got there? I've been down there. Uh, I did a documentary from there. And also, when I got signed to come to England by Mickey Most, English record producer. I want to talk about him with you. Okay. He had come over to Detroit with Jeff Beck and Cozy Powell to record at Motown. And he came and saw the band I was with. Didn't like the band, only wanted me and invited me to join the session. So there's me in the pit at Motown Studios with Jeff Beck and Cozy Powell. 
And I went down into the pit, grabbed the bass, and started to play. And Jeff came down, and Cozy came down, and we did there's me in the studio doing that i can't i said i can't believe this is happening and we we just jammed we just jammed and it's it's the most magical little space it really is did you save the recording i don't think anybody recorded it they were i was just there with them but i'll never forget it as long as i live fantastic fantastic Hi, everybody. This is your host, Robert Miller. I'm pleased to tell you that I've got a new album coming out soon called Bobby M. and the Paisley Parade. It features 10 new songs plus guest appearances by John Helliwell of Supertramp, Tony Carey of Rainbow, and international sitar sensation Deobrat Mishra. The album has a definite 60s vibe, and the theme of the record is all about relationships and love. It may just be my best album ever. The reviewers agree. Indie Shark calls it album of the year big celebrity buzz says it's one of the great rock sets of the year and pop icon calls it an adventure that keeps us on the edge of our seats how about that and for me the icing on the cake is the praise that the album has received from world-class musicians like steve hackett of genesis gary puckett of the union gap Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary, Jim McCarty of the Yardbirds, and David Liebert of The Happenings. I'm going to release the 10 songs on the album in a novel way, in five special episodes of this podcast, featuring two songs in each one, starting after the new year. So be on the lookout for these special episodes of Bobby M., and the Paisley Parade. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to this podcast and please sign up for our weekly emails previewing each episode and much more. The links are all in the show notes. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. All right, listen, I want to go to some of the songs that we have picked out for you because this kind of covers your career. And I want everybody to hear just the the variation and the development that you've had in your career because it's really been sparkling. So the first thing that we're playing right now is probably your first hit, I think. It's called Can the Can. I think it's from 1973, but you'll correct me if I'm wrong.
Tell me a little bit about that one. Um, oh God, long story short. Um, I was in England for about a year, maybe 14 months. I was going stir crazy. Mickey couldn't get me on record. He just, and he's the first to say so, couldn't produce me, didn't know what I was. I said, I got to get a band, got to get a band. So I finally got a band. And that's when everything gelled because the band was doing all my own material. And then we went on the first ever Slade tour with that band. Mickey got me to be the opening act at 20 minutes. Got the, obviously after a tour, you're going to have the sound together. And then he had just signed, because I was a songwriter, bass player, singer, songwriter. He had just signed Chin and Chapman. And he said, they seem to be able to come up with a magical three minute single. Do you mind if they try to write you one? I said, oh, of course not. So they came and saw a gig and they went away that night and wrote Can the Can. And we went into the rehearsal room the next day. And because oh, the, the demo is the demo, it's, you know, unbelievably loud. Mike loves his loud guitar, wasn't refined. So we all together as a band formed that song. The drummer put that drum beat in. I have a very cooking bass line, especially that middle bit where I show off a bit. You know, that wasn't done back then in records. Uh, so we all made that our song and it became my first worldwide hit. That one song sold two and a half million by itself. Isn't that fantastic? If you sold two and a half million now, you'd be at the top of Billboard for the next year. Okay. Because things don't work that way. Because nobody pays for music anymore. <laughs> I know. Let's talk about Mickey Most for a second, because he's one of the guys that I followed back in the day. I mean, this guy produced the animals, Hermits, Hermits, Jeff Beck. How did you get with him? My brother was kind of helping us out. He was putting festivals on and he was the, the second wave of the pleasure seekers was cradle. So he was booking us here and there. And he found out that Mickey was coming to Detroit and he got a hold of him and said, come and see this all girl band, which Mickey did. But like I said, he only wanted me. So I had had two offers in one week, same Thing so crazy, so you know, fate again. Electro Records had been to see the same band, Jack Holtzman, the owner. He offered me a solo contract, only me. And that same week, Mickey came, saw the band, and offered me a solo contract. Now, Jack said, I want to take you to New York and get a male band around you and make you into the next Janis Joplin. Mickey Mouse said to me, Come to England, I'm going to make a record with you in the studio and make you into the first Susie Quattro. So where did I go? <laughs> he had the right line. I'm not the second anybody, and I'm nothing like Janice, to tell you. I love Janice, but I'm not like her. I am a rocker. She's a blueser, you know? Yeah, I agree with you. All right, let's go to the second one. You did a cover, and I told you I love this, of Glad All Over by the Dave Clark Five. Now, back in the day, anybody that went through the whole Beatlemania era, as I did and I think you did, you knew it was the Beatles versus the Dave Clark Five, okay? And it, of course, didn't stay that way for very long, but the Dave Clark Five was a very cool band. 
And Glad All Over was one of their two biggest hits. So tell me your feeling about that song, the band, and your cover of that song. I always, uh, I liked the almost arrogant simplicity of that band. <laughs> if that makes sense. Really, I mean, the Beatles were complicated, you know, and they was always versus. The, but the Dave Clark Five unashamedly just did very simple music, you know, and Glad All Over was just one of those infectious songs. And when we were doing that particular album, I'm trying to think which album was on. I think it was on Susie and All the Four Letter Words. Um, Mike Chapman suggested that, which suggested that one as a cover. And yeah, it works. It does work. The drummer was so forefront in that band, wasn't he? Totally. I mean, that was Dave Clark. He was in the limelight. Yeah. It was another thing about that band and that song. If you remember the the video that they had back then of the of the Dave Clark Five singing the song, they went back and forth. They were in their English, you know, band uniform kind of garb, and the saxophone player was going left and right, left and right as he was playing on that thing. And you know, for a teenager at the time looking at this, it was very cool. I have to tell you. It was cool. And I know them all very well. Um, you want to talk saxophone moving, go to Little Richard when he put his band together and all the horns were moving. Anyway, I digress. Go ahead. <laughs> no, that's okay. Digress all you want. Go ahead. <laughs> no, it, it's a, so there's certain magical rock and roll moments. That's all. The girl can't help it. It was in. And um, Little Richard played a bit in that. And he had those those whacked out horn players just moving up. Sure, genius. Was that your favorite rock and roll movie? It's the most honest rock and roll movie. Okay, what's your favorite? What's your favorite? Were you a Hard Day's Night girl? No, I'm not. Maybe Jailhouse Rock. In that movie, what was that movie called? Um, was the oh, movie it was an Elvis Jailhouse? movie? I, yeah, wasn't it called Jailhouse Rock? I, I think, think it so. Was. Yeah, that that to me with that with that iconic dance routine, I, you can't beat that. <laughs> you cannot beat that what he did on that, an untrained dancer. Oh, fantastic. All right, let's go to the third song. This one, we're, we're going a little bit further along in your career. This is No Soul, No Control. us about this one my son has been in band since he's been 14 and he finally came to me in 219 and he said i need to write with you now I went, okay so this was unexpected i said what you got and he played three or four different wrists for me and i said you know what i can work with this so we started to work together we did we did we were in the studio doing three demos actually in all honesty just having fun and after the third demo was being put down i'm sitting across from which i've never worked with him before and i said to the engineer you know what we're making an album and he said we are the two best albums of my career and this one he gave me the riff of this and he said to me it's something about my soul mom 
that you can't control my soul. I went, okay. And I sat down with my computer, with my bass and my song lyrics, and it just flew out. And it's probably lyrically one of the most honest songs about myself that I've ever written. You can't take away my soul. You can't break me because I'm in control. You can't take my heart, my mind. This time I won't let go. You can't take away my soul. No, 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 no. <laughs> that says it all, doesn't it? It does. You know, you've got like a tough persona. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean it in a positive way. I assume that getting to the levels that you have achieved in music and in rock in particular, as a female, you had to deal with stuff that others and guys in particular didn't have to deal with. Am I right? It must have been difficult along the way. Well, I have to, I have to say, I've been asked this question many times. I think the reason, in hindsight, this is the reason that it fell on my shoulders to be the first successful female musician rock and roll that I have worldwide success. This is on my shoulders, and I take that to my grave. Is that I didn't know I was doing it. <laughs> I knocked down the door because I didn't see the door. If you, if you, as you're talking to me now, I'm not the kind of person to put limits on me. If I want to do something. I'm going to do it. And nobody's going to tell me any different. You're not going to try to say to me, oh, you shouldn't do this. If you if you say that to me, I'll do it even more. So I didn't realize what I had done. And I'd always, I've always had self-belief. And I put out the attitude of, hi, I'm Susie. I play bass. And then I watch your face. And let's see what you do. I didn't get it till my documentary came out. And I watched it with an audience at my first premiere. And then I realized what I had done. I didn't know it. And it's good because it means I didn't have an agenda, which is, is honest. You know, you're, you're just doing what you're doing. I made it because I stuck to me. I didn't try to be somebody else's version of who I was. And there was a chance maybe I wouldn't have even been. Who knows, you know? So what was the motivation? Was it coming from Detroit? Was it being Italian? Was it being female? What, where, where did that come from? What do you think? Well, now, when you said that, what first came to my mind just then was that I came from a family of five. And when you come from a family of five, it's wonderful. You're secure. You, you don't even need any outside friends. Everything's there. Loving family. But I needed to find my voice. That was not one of the kids. So it gave me that, that push to find my light, whatever that might be. And I said it when I got my uh, honorary doctor at, at Cambridge. I said, your job in life, no matter what you do, no matter what your sex is, no matter what your creed, what your cut, doesn't matter. We all have a light. Go inside and find that light. Switch it on and like nobody switch it off. And this, this is who I am. Well, this is why I named this podcast Follow Your Dream, okay? Because you are a perfect example of somebody that has followed their dream. Okay, let's do a couple more songs. Um, I want to skip to My Heart and Soul. I Need You Home for Christmas. You can't stop me Trying to get to you Stop me, baby. 
it's a different kind of song for you. And I've heard you talk about it before. Tell me about that motivation that went into that song. Well, it was COVID. So I wasn't seeing my husband lives in Hamburg. So borders are closed. He can't get here. I can't get there. And we took the COVID lockdown, my son and I, to start to write the second album, which the company had commissioned. And I said, come on, let, let's be positive. We can't go on the road. He was had a whole year of dates booked with the band he was working with. I had amazing amount of dates booked. Can't do them. So I so said, let's write the song. Let's write this. So I had a studio in the back garden and I, I sit on the patio and work acoustic because that's, I'm old school. And he went into the studio and worked on machines. So we were writing the album and I'm working on something. And he left the door of the studio open. And out comes this track, bear track, with a drum beat, a bass guitar, and a guitar. And I went, really? I just, it took my breath away. I went, what, what, what is that? And my artistic knowledge kicked in. And I immediately said to myself, do not think. Do you get it? Don't think something has just hit you don't think so i put down my little thing i walked out to the studio in a daze like a zombie and i said what is that and he went what i said what are you playing he said just something i'm working i said do me a favor richard give me the headphones put the microphone on and play that track and i sang the first four lines without thinking in a voice i had never used before you're talking creative magic here. And it's just, where did it come from? In the cosmos, who knows? There was the song, obviously inspired by COVID, you know? Just fantastic, what a song. I said to Richard, it's so good, it's like somebody else wrote it. And he went, somebody did? I said, no, 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 you don't get it. I mean, it sounds like it's already been written, you know? It was just so beautiful. And we did a great video for it. And uh, I'm very proud of that song. Well, you should be. It's a lovely song. And, you know, the idea that somehow you just dig deep down and something comes out and you're not thinking about it. It just happens. It's based upon your experience. It's based upon your knowledge, your talent. It, it's kind of a magical situation, isn't it? When that all comes together. It's called creativity. And I don't want to question it. I just welcome it in. My antennas are always up. <laughs> and luckily, somebody hit the record button. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do one last one. This is Do You Dance? This is more like Susie Quattro than I know. So tell me about this one. Right. This one, my son sent me a, a, a completed track. And I had to work on this one. Because I love the track. And he didn't give me any. Oh, he said, you dance. He said, you dance, mom. That's my title, you dance. I went, okay. Took it. Got the bass part. Singing them. Doing da, 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 da. And I had to find a scenario that worked for me. 
So I imagined the girl on the dance floor getting a little bit rude, carried away with her lyrics. And that one line I love, let me finish first. You know, I love that line. Then I got the story together about, you know, how dirty dancing, dancing can be very dirty. It can be, can be very suggestive being completely closed and doing nothing but dancing. So that's where I went with that song. It's a great, and we did the video in my garage. Great little track, great little track. But the funny thing is certain songs fit into my show and certain songs don't. And I put this in the set and it didn't fit. Interesting. Why? I don't question it. It just didn't flow with everything else. So we took it back out. There's other stuff from the albums that fit in perfectly. And I do them now. No sonal control. I do. I do the devil in me. Uh, I do. Um, what else do I do? I sold my soul today. That fits in. Certain things fit. Certain things don't. You don't know why. It just happens. You're right. Sometimes you just don't know why. All right. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about Leather Tuscadero. Over here, Leather. Oh, there she is now. Oh, hey, she is cool. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, they had the script for a long time. They knew that Pinky was going to leave, my older sister. They liked the Tuscadero thing. And so they started to think about continuing with another character. So they had this leather Tuscadero script. And they couldn't find it, what they wanted. I heard this years when I was there. I, I didn't know about this before. They were looking for somebody for about six months. And they wanted somebody who could sing and act and was tough and vulnerable. Hello. <laughs> so the casting director, Ronnie Hallen, who I'm still close to, Gary Marshall's sister, she went home. And her daughter had a collage of Rolling Stone covers on her bedroom wall. And my picture was on there from, I think, 1975. And she went in there. She told me she went in there. She went, who's that? That's who we're looking for. And her daughter said, that's Susie Quattro. So the call went out. I was in Japan on tour. And I was supposed to fly to L.A. and audition for this role of a show I'd never seen. I thought, okay. Got the part, turned into three seasons. I'm still friends with Henry and Ronnie. And apparently Henry was on just the other day on Nationwide TV talking about me, which is lovely. We email all the time. And Ronnie and I email all the time. And I remember asking Ronnie not that long ago in a conversation. I said, um, I'm curious, Ron. I said, uh, when I joined the show, and be honest with me, did I look like a new a new actress. It was my first acting role. And did, did you think I looked like I belonged or didn't belong in it? And he said, first of all, you slid right in as if you had always been in the show. It didn't, you didn't look like a newcomer. And second of all, don't ever take acting lessons. And I said, why? He said, because you're a natural. And I went, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> You can't get a better endorsement than that. You can't. This has been an experience to be with you and to and to hear from you. We have been talking to the iconic Susie Quattro, Dr. Susie Quattro. And I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. It's really been a fun. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much.
We're going to listen now to the song that started off the episode. It's my song called Get Out. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Crazy.